I've got two ways I want to describe this episode. Number one, you're going to agree with a lot of the stuff I'm going to say, and you're not going to agree with some of the stuff I'm going to say. The second way I want to describe this episode is as follows. It's like vegetables. We don't necessarily like to eat them, but they're good for you. Roll the intro. What's up? I'm your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo, pastor and online Bible teacher. It wasn't all that long ago that I lacked the confidence, knowledge, and tools to feed my desire to dig deeper into God's Word. Fast forward past many lessons learned, mentors, and personal encounters with God, and you'll see the incredible privilege God has given me to teach the Bible to others. I'm convinced now more than ever that it's been God's word that has led me to discover and fulfill the purpose God designed for me. I created the Christian Bro Code podcast to help you on your journey to do the same. If you're a Christian bro who wants to grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead in a way that honors God, you're in the right place. Let's get started, bro. Hey, what's up? It's your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Christian Bro Code Podcast. You're listening to Season 3, Episode Number 4, released on June 20th, 2020. New episodes of the podcast, the first and third Saturday of every month, 7.30 in the morning. That way you have something to listen to as you're changing the oil, cutting your grass, whatever it is that you're doing on Saturday. You got something to grow with, listen to, and grow as you're doing your Saturday job. So, hey, the whole point, the whole purpose of the Christian Bro Code, be it the podcast or the YouTube channel, is to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead to honor God. So all the episodes on the podcast and all the videos and teachings on the YouTube channel are with that purpose in mind, help you grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead to honor God. And just as a reminder, new episodes of the podcast, first and third Saturday of every month. I want to remind you also that over on the christianbrocode.com, the website, christianbrocode.com, I have a free resource, a training that I want to provide to you that's going to help you improve your Bible study. Now, I change these resources up from time to time. Currently, the resource that is available now, this is June 2020, is a training that I put together on how to kickstart your very own Bible study library. Now, in my opinion, one of the best things you can do to grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead to honor God is to study the Bible. I mean, that's that's where it's all coming from, right? That's how we learn how to be like Jesus. That's how we learn how to be disciples of Jesus. And so I feel that studying your Bible, having a good, solid process for studying your Bible, not just depending on Sundays when your pastor preaches or going to a group. No, I mean, doing your own Bible study is so crucial to your spiritual growth it's 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 you need to do it. And so I put this training together in which I describe to you three tools that you can get a hold of so that you can kickstart your own Bible study library which in turn is going to help you have a solid Bible study time of your own. These tools are not for the professionals or the pastors, it's really for anybody who wants to just take their Bible study, personal Bible study to the next level. So, visit the christianbrocode.com free training completely free. So you can check out these three resources that I talked to you about. All right, let's jump into the episode. I've got a good teaching for you. Remember that we're on a three-part series on the blessing of Obed-Edom. This is part three. We already did parts one and two. So if you haven't listened to those, 
You can check out the archive wherever you're listening to the podcast and you'll see that the two episodes that immediately follow this one that you're listening to right now are parts one and two of this three-part series on the blessing of Obed-Edom. Let me give the summary that I've given in the first two episodes to kind of get us up to speed and give us a bit of a background as to what we're talking about in this episode. What we find out is in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that David wanted to transport the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It had been away from the city of Jerusalem, and David wanted to transport the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Very important reason that David wanted to do this. David was establishing Jerusalem as the capital for the people of Israel. Building his palace in Jerusalem indicated that it would be the political capital of the nation. Bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem indicated that it would be the nation's religious capital. Why? For the people of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's very presence. And this was also the reason that David wanted to build a temple which of course God didn't allow him to do, but he wanted to build a temple in Jerusalem. It, it, that's that's a very strong statement saying this is the religious, the spiritual capital of our nation. Well, the Ark of the Covenant had been away from that, spir- that spiritual center, and so David wanted to bring it to Jerusalem. On the way, and you're probably familiar with this story, on the way, a man by the name of Uzzah died because he touched the Ark of the Covenant. The oxen were pulling the cart where the Ark of the Covenant was on, being transported, and he they stumbled. The Ark was about to fall. Uzzah stretches out his hand to stabilize the Ark. Bam. As soon as he touches it, he falls dead. David is upset about this, obviously, and he doesn't want to continue the journey. So what does he do? He takes a little detour, and he leaves the Ark of the Covenant at the house of a man named obed Edom, and this is a guy we've been talking about, kind of talking about him in a way. And this is what the Bible says about what happened with Obed-Edom as a result of having the Ark of the Covenant in his house. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 11 says, The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Verse 12, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has, now this is key, because of the Ark of God. And here's what we're saying, obviously because the Ark of the Covenant was there in Obed-Edom's house, he experienced this blessing for three months. What I've been emphasizing in the previous two episodes and now in this episode is that all we're told is that for three months that the Ark was there is that the Lord blessed Obed-Edom. However, we're not told the specific manner in which Obed-Edom was blessed. It's just that he he was blessed. How? Who knows? In what way? The Bible doesn't specify. So what I'm doing is that I'm suggesting the manner in which Obed-Edom was blessed during those three months that the Ark of the Covenant was in his house. Now, I admit, I admit there is some speculation involved in this because the Bible does not tell us specifically It doesn't tell us specifically in which manner Obed-Edom was blessed while the Ark of the Covenant was in his house. So I I admit, I I can own that, that there is a bit of speculation on my part when I talk to you about the way in which Obed-Edom was being blessed. Even so, I think that what I'm proposing has validity. It, It makes sense, because what I'm proposing is that Even though we're not told specifically how Obed-Edom was blessed, because the blessing was related to the Ark of the Covenant, that was the direct reason why he was blessed, what I'm proposing is that the blessing he experienced was not only related to the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was in his house, but more specifically, it was related to 
the three items that were inside the Ark of the Covenant. You'll remember that there were three items in the Ark of the Covenant. We've already talked about two of them, the tablets of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod. Today, we're going to talk about the jar of manna. I think that, yes, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, represented God's presence, but the three items inside, those were were pretty important because they they represented some very significant moments in Israel's history, specifically time that they spent wandering in the wilderness. And so I think that it's it's plausible to suggest that the the blessings that Obed-Edom experienced for the three months that the Ark of the Covenant was in his house were related to the three items in the Ark of the Covenant, meaning that these three items represented a specific way that God related to his people. And so that type of blessing was represented in Obed-Edom's house for those three months. And so what I said, for example, uh, in season three, episode two, of the Ten Commandments, that first item that I that I spoke about in this three-part series, is that the blessing that manifested itself in Obed-Edom's house was a blessing of right relationships or restored relationships, because the Ten Commandments, to me, and I went through a whole a whole bunch of scriptures to demonstrate this, the Ten Commandments, that's what they represented for the people of Israel. And so that blessing manifested itself in the house of Obed-Edom, right relationships, restored relationships. Go check out that episode in case you haven't heard it yet. In season three, episode two, uh, we talked about Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod, and that represented authority and leadership. And I talked about that as well and how that played itself out in uh, in Aaron's home. I'm, I'm not in Aaron's home, in Obed-Edom's home. But today we're going to talk about the jar of manna and what that represents and what blessing that may have represented for the home of Obed-Edom. The jar of manna, Represents God's provision. God's provision. I don't know what I was going to say. Probably decision. I was speaking Greek there. God's provision. That's that's to me. That's what the jar of manna that's inside the Ark of the Covenant. It represents God's provision. So let's talk about that. Now, each of these three items, their backstory is during the time of the wilderness wandering for the people of Israel. They've come out of Egypt. And so they're now free, they're seeing God move mightily, they're seeing God provide. And in this case specifically, when it comes to the jar of manna, the people of Israel had had just crossed the Red Sea. I mean, they had just witnessed God's power in dividing the Red Sea, allowing them to cross on dry land, and then drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. I mean, that, that was in chapters 14 and 15. And then here we are in chapter 16, not long after the people of Israel witnessed that huge miracle on God's part. They're complaining to Moses about not having food. So this is this is what happens, Exodus 16, starting in verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. What an attitude, right? There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So the people, they've just witnessed God's miraculous hand in crossing the Red Sea, and now they're complaining about not having food. This was God's response to their grumbling in verse 4 of Exodus 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I'll test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. That's for in preparation for the Sabbath, which would be the seventh day. 
Then we see the fulfillment of God's promise. God said he was going to do this. He was going to make bread rain from heaven. And then in verse 11, we see the fulfillment of this promise. This is what verse 11 says. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat. And in the morning, you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, because apparently crossing the Red Sea wasn't enough for them. Verse 13, that evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes of frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? In Hebrew, manah, for they they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So boom, promise fulfilled. God told the Israelites he was going to give them bread, and here you have it, he gives them bread. And then God gave some instructions on how they were to gather the manna or the bread that he had sent to them. We see this in Exodus 16, 16. This is what the Lord commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. An omer is a a, a unit of measure. I've seen different uh, approximations for what it means for us today. Some say a quart, some say about three pounds, something to that effect. The, the point being that an omer was enough for one person to eat. And so if you had four people in your tent, then you would gather four omers of manna, one for each, one omer for each person. And when the people of God followed God's instructions, what do you know? They had exactly what they needed. Verse 17 says like this, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, by the, the measurement that God had told them to gather, the one who had gathered much didn't have too much. And the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. So when they followed God's instructions, gather an omer for each person in your tent, they had exactly what they needed, not too much, not too little. They had exactly what they needed. Then they get some further instructions in verse 19. Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Now, let me take a quick pause here. And, and you know, I guess, I guess it's a little bit of psychoanalysis. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't tell you exactly what these people were thinking, but just given the fact, you know, what we know about human nature in general, these people were told, don't keep any of it until morning. Eat all that you want from that omer and, you know, don't keep any until the next morning. But some didn't do it. They didn't pay attention. They kept it until morning. And I'm thinking that these people may have been thinking this way. And and before we're too rough on these people, it's probably the way you and I have thought on many occasions. These people were probably thinking, okay, so God provided today. That was miraculous, man. That that was, wow, that was pretty awesome. But what about tomorrow? Yeah, God provided today, but will he provide tomorrow? Who knows? You know what? Just to be safe, right? And, and maybe they even use the, the excuse, you know, God wants us to be wise. Just to be wise, just to be safe. What if we just, you know, we'll just keep a little bit. We'll, we'll just put a little bit off to the side because, yeah, he did it today. It was miraculous today, but who knows? He, he, he may not be around tomorrow. He may not do it tomorrow. So let's just put it a little bit to the side, even though, you know, we were told not to do it. And what happened? Well, it became maggot infested. And that's that's a very key lesson to take away just from that one verse there, that it's a faith thing. 
You, you need to believe God for today, but you also need to believe him for tomorrow. Even when it seems that what he's asking you to do for tomorrow or to believe for tomorrow doesn't make sense, you still need to believe God for that. And the fact that this manna got all infested by maggots is a demonstration that when you don't do things God's way, meaning when you try to do things the way you think is best, you think is wise, then things just go rotten and they begin to smell. It, it just doesn't work that way. It's not, there's no blessing in that. God isn't obligated to keep your manna fresh to the next day if you don't follow the instructions that he laid out very clearly. So when you don't do things God's way, things get full of maggots and they begin to smell. As long as the people of Israel did what they were told to do, everything worked out fine. No problem. It's when they deviated from God's instructions that things got rotten, got full of maggots, and smelled. More instructions. And these instructions are related specifically to what the people are supposed to do for the Sabbath. Now, remember, for the people of Israel, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of complete rest and honor to God. And so Moses gives some very clear instructions in verse 21. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. This is the only time when the people would be allowed uh, to, to keep something until the next morning. Essentially, they're preparing food for the day, let's call it Friday, and for Saturday, which is supposed to be a day of rest. That That's what Moses is commanding them to do. Verse 24, so they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it didn't stink or get maggots in it. Wow. Any other day when they tried to save it, it would get full of maggots and begin to stink. Not this time. Why? Those were God's instructions. That's how God commanded it. Verse 25, eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You're not going to find any of it on the ground today. Six days you're to gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath, there will not be any. So understand what's happening. For six days, Sunday through Friday, uh, there was going to be manna on the ground. Go out and collect it. On Friday, collect twice as much because on Saturday, there's not going to be any manna. Okay. And on Friday, prepare what you need to eat for Friday and for Saturday, because on Saturday, you're not doing any work. You're not gathering. You're not preparing. You need to rest. What do you think happened? Verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. I mean, it's amazing, right? They they had already seen that when they kept manna till the next day, it got full of maggots and it smelled because they disobeyed God's instructions. Don't keep it till the next day. And here they're told, don't go out and try to gather on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. There's not going to be anything out there. Rest. But some of the people went out and they did it anyway. And what happens? They didn't find anything. And this is where the Lord gets upset. Verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. And, and we, go, we go back to the point that I made earlier, that when you, when you follow God's instructions, then God comes through. I mean, he, he does things exactly the way he said he would do them. And when you don't follow God's instructions, then things don't go the way you planned them to go. You, you, can't, you can't replace God's instructions with your own instructions. It, it's not going to work. Things are not going to work out the way you're wanting them to work out. And God isn't obligated 
to fulfill your needs or your wants when you're doing things that go against his instructions. That, that's clear for, for me, at least, from this story. And we're talking specifically about provision. We're talking specifically about provision. And so in these last verses that, that I'm going to read, we, we, there's a summary of all of this. Verses 31 through 35 provide us a summary of everything that, that we just read in these verses. The summary is in verses 31 through 35. Listen how it reads, starting in verse 31. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It's white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. Verse 33. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Verse 34. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. This is when they get put in the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan, meaning God provided every day that they were in the wilderness. Now, I've been mentioning this, and here's, here's what, what I see being the point of the jar of manna in the Ark of the Covenant and what this story is communicating, not only to the people of Israel at that time, but for generations to come. If you want God to provide, you need to do things God's way. That, that for me is the, like the big takeaway from this narrative, from this episode in Israel's history. If you want God to provide, you need to do things God's way. Notice in this episode that we read, that when the people did not do things the way God had instructed, when they wanted to do things their own way, what happened? Things did not work out. Maggot-infested manna that smelled. When they wanted to go out and collect, when God told them it wasn't time to go out and collect, they found nothing. But as long as they did things the way that God had instructed them to do it, he provided. I mean, there was no problem. God was happy to provide, and he provided exactly in the way that he said he was going to provide, when the people did it the way he instructed them. And this is where I'm going to, I'm going to emphasize this. If you want God to provide, you need to do things God's way. I'm sure that you can agree with that. There's no problem whatsoever with that statement. And what, I, what, I've, what I've learned as I read the different promises that God makes in Scripture, and I, I can't say that I've read every single one of the promises that God has, has declared in Scripture, but I see a very consistent pattern, and I think you can agree with me on this, that every promise comes with a prerequisite. Every promise that God makes in His Word has a condition. God's promises are definitely conditional. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You're going to read repeatedly in Scripture, if you do this, then I will do this. I will do this when you do this, I will do this, when you do this, or if you do this. God's promises are definitely conditional. There, there are requirements for us to fulfill in order to receive God's promises. And, and look, it's not just believe. You know, j- just believe that God is going to do this and, and he's, he's going to do it. it. It goes beyond that. There's action that needs to be taken if you want to see God's promises fulfilled in your life. And in the case of provision— we, we see this in the story here of Israel being provided manna. God laid out some instructions of what they were supposed to do, and in order for God to provide manna for them, they needed to fulfill the instructions. 
they needed to do things according to the way God had instructed. And when it didn't, they didn't do that, well, things didn't go the way the people wanted them to go. And so if we're talking about finances and provision, okay, I think that one of the aspects, one of the ways in which the household of Obed-Edom was blessed is that there was this blessing of provision in his home if Obed-Edom followed the instructions that God had laid out. Now, here's where things get a little gray. Here's, here's where you're, you're, you're going to possibly disagree with me. Okay, I think I can say this following statement, and there's a pretty good chance that you are going to agree with me. But the way in which we do what I'm going to say next, it's it's going to differ. There's going to be some disagreement. But here's here's what I'll suggest to you: that the prerequisite for getting God's provision is to honor God with your finances. If you want God to provide and to bless your home financially, and for Him to provide for you and to supply for all your needs. You first of all need to honor God with your finances. I think we can all agree on that. I think that's a very clear um, mandate in Scripture. Honor God with your wealth. Honor God with your finances, and God will take care of the rest. God will provide for you. God will supply. God will even bless and prosper you if you honor God with your finances. Now, here's where there might be a point of difference and disagreement. How do you honor God with your finances? I mean, what's, what's the way that you honor God with your finances? In the Old Testament, there was no question. It was very clear. You tithe. You tithe. The way to honor God with your finances and the prerequisite, you see this in Malachi, the prerequisite for God opening up the, store, the, the windows of heaven and, and overflowing blessing to come to fill your storehouses, rebuking the devourer. There was no question that in the Old Testament, tithing was the way to honor God with your finances. Now, the question is, does that carry over to us who are living in a New Testament era, post-Jesus? And I'm, I'm going I'm to lay all my cards on the table right here. For me, this is me, okay? Tithing is a biblical mandate. I do not believe that tithing has been abolished. That's me. Okay. This is where you and I may have a point of disagreement. And you know what? It's okay. It's, I've, I've, I've come to the point, I've accepted this, that it's okay that you and I have a point of disagreement on tithing. I used to be a lot more rigid in this and saying, no, I mean, you have to tithe, you have to tithe. But as I got to thinking, I was thinking, okay, in my opinion, this isn't one of those non-negotiable teachings or doctrines of the church. By that, I mean, for example, non-negotiables would be um, the Trinity, three persons, one God. That's a non-negotiable. The inspiration of Scripture, that's a non-negotiable. The the personhood of Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God, that is a non-negotiable. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, that is a non-negotiable. That is a pillar. I mean, you you cannot claim to be a follower of Christ and not hold these non-negotiable doctrines. I've come to the point that I cannot elevate tithing to that non-negotiable. I'll I'll repeat, for me, it is absolutely a biblical mandate. For me, it's something that I would say, yeah, you should still do it. I I think the Bible is clear that you should still tithe, that it was not abolished when Jesus came on the scene, that it's still in place, 
and that it's something that as believers, even New Testament believers, it's something that we should do. But again, I'm not going to elevate it to the point of a non-negotiable because I think there are some legitimate questions that need to be dealt with. But understand my stance completely. I do believe in tithing as a biblical mandate. It's what I teach at my church. It's what one of the requirements we have for leadership at our church. It's something that my wife and I have practiced our entire marriage faithfully, thank God. It's what we teach our children. It's what I learned from my parents and my wife learned from her parents. And, and you know, it'd be easy to say, well, we tithe because we were instructed to tithe because that's what they taught us to do. Yeah, but I think there's Bible to back that up. And, and so let me, let me explain to you, again, I believe 100% in tithing as a biblical mandate, but I understand that there's a, there can be some disagreement there. And so what I'm going to present to you are two reasons that I've heard for people saying, no, tithing is not a requirement for us now in the New Testament. And I'm not trying to defeat anyone's argument. I'm just, I'm just going to give a response to, to those reasons that people give for, for saying, no, tithing is not necessary for us in this era of New Testament living. The first thing I've heard from, from people is, is this, tithing is an Old Testament thing. Tithing is a law thing. It's for people living under the law. It's not a grace thing, right? When Jesus came, he ushered in the era of grace, which means that the era of the law had been, you know, it had ended. And so tithing is an Old Testament thing. And since we are saved by Christ and we live by grace, we no longer live under the law. And, and I, I can get behind that. I can definitely get behind that, but you will have to explain away what Jesus said when what Jesus went, meant when he said, "I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law." And you can't just dance around that. I mean, there's something there. He didn't say, "Hey, don't don't do anything in the law anymore because I'm here." No, I am the fulfillment of the law. Okay. Now, here's here's what what I think about this: that if you want to push the argument and you want to say, "Well," tithing is a law thing, it's not a grace thing, then here's, here's how I respond to that. Here's how I've thought through this. Grace asks for more than what the law asks for. Grace requires more than what the law requires. As followers of Jesus, living under grace, more is asked of us than if we were followers of the law. Grace requires more than the law requires. And let me, let me lay this out. Let me, let me show you why I believe that, because I think Jesus taught that. I think Jesus himself taught that. Matthew chapter 5, the, the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And Jesus, of course, does not address tithing specifically in this, uh, on this Sermon on the Mount, but there's a concept there that I think does apply to the teaching of tithing. Matthew chapter 5 Verse 21, this is Jesus teaching, and he says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Okay, that's law. That's law. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's law. Now, here's the grace statement. Here's living under grace. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to a brother, raka, fool, is answerable to the court. So notice how Jesus ushering in this era of grace, he, he takes the standard up. I mean, he, he, he elevates the requirement. The law just says don't kill anybody, 
okay, oh, that, that's easy enough. I can go around and not kill anybody. I'm fulfilling the law. But Jesus, ushering in this era of grace, says, no, <laughs> don't even get angry. Don't call anybody a fool. Notice how the grace that Jesus introduced required more than what the law required. He also said in verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the law. That is the law. Now look at Jesus' statement. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He required more. You can stay away. I mean, you don't, you don't have to go and lay with the woman and have sex with her. And bam, you've, you've fulfilled the law. But Jesus required more. He says, don't even look at a woman. Don't even have lustful thoughts about a woman, because if you've done, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Notice he requires more than what the law requires. Now, again, he doesn't, he doesn't use tithing as an example, but let's take the concept of he requires more than the law requires, and let's apply it to tithing. The law says, give God 10% of all that comes into your barns, your storehouses, your, your fields, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For us, we would say 10% of all of our income. That's what the law says. But if you want to take it to an aspect of grace that we don't live under the law, then okay. If Jesus, as I've laid out, and I think it's pretty clear, he requires more than what the law requires, then guess what? You would be required under grace to give more than the 10%. You see, you see how that, that works? Grace requires more. If you want to live under grace, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Your starting point when it comes to giving is 10%. That's where you start. I mean, the law just requires 10%. That's it. But under grace, you would be required to do more than what the law requires. That's, that's how I see it. That, that's, that's, how, that's where I come from that I say, as a person of grace, I, I, my starting point is 10%. And then when I give above and beyond 10%, that's generosity. But 10% is just what I've been asked to do. And, and that's what the law requires me to do. And grace requ- if grace requires more from me, then my starting point is 10%. That's, that's me. Okay, that, that's, that's one of the reasons that I say, yeah, tithing is still in place. It wasn't abolished by Jesus. It's still in place. In fact, it's just the starting point. And, and in, my, in my study in Scripture, in my opinion, my, you know, what I've come, the conclusion I've come to in studying the Scriptures, especially as it relates to tithing, is that you tithe to the place that is providing you spiritual sustenance. See, in the Old Testament, they would tithe to the tabernacle and to the temple so that it could keep going. It, it needed to function. The priests and the Levites needed to survive. They needed to live. That was what they did. They just worked at the temple all day, so they needed to keep that thing going. And so the people of Israel would tithe to the temple so that it could keep going. It was their place of spiritual sustenance. It was, it was the place that they were getting fed from. It's where they were going to have encounters with God, so they would tithe to the place that provided spiritual sustenance for them. In my opinion, I think that our tithe or your tithe should go to your primary house of worship, to the place where you get spiritually fed. Now, 
if you're church hopping, you can't do that. And church hopping in itself, in my opinion, is is wrong. You don't you get rooted. I mean, stay somewhere. Be a man. Be responsible. Stay somewhere. And that place that provides your primary source of spiritual growth, that's where your 10% should go. I personally am against the idea that my tithe goes to this ministry over here, 2%, then 3% over here, and then 4% over here. And I don't know where I am on the percentage. I don't know if I'm at 10% yet, but but you divide it and say, I've tithed to the work of the Lord. That's great. That's beautiful. But I think what that what scripture teaches us is that your tithe, that first 10% goes to the place that is providing your spiritual nourishment, your home church. On top of that, if you want to give beyond that to other ministries here, there, and everywhere, do it. That's generosity. That's advancing the work of the kingdom. But your primary responsibility is to maintain the place where you are being spiritually nourished. Now, back then, there was one temple, so everyone would tie to that one temple. Now we have churches everywhere, but it should be your home church, the place where you've established roots, the place where you serve, the place where you're being fed. You are responsible for the the upkeep, the maintaining, the ongoing working of what's happening in that place that provides you spiritual nourishment. That's how I see it. And again, you may disagree. You may disagree. This is one of those non, this, this is, tithing is not a non-negotiable. This is something that we can disagree. And guess what? We'll still see each other in heaven, even though we had differing opinions. That's okay. No biggie. I would just say that if if you're on the opposite side of what what I'm proposing is is correct. Just make sure you've got scripture to back it up. And and just make sure that you've got some some scriptural basis to to demonstrate why it is that you've come to the conclusion that you've come to. So that's that's the first reason and that was a pretty extended explanation. The second reason isn't going to be quite as lengthy, but the first reason that I think tithing is is necessary is because grace asks for more than the law does. And this this is a a response to those individuals who would say tithing is an Old Testament thing, it's a law thing, we're no longer under the law, we're now under grace. That's my response. Well, grace asks for more than the law does. Let's go on to the second thing or the second reason I've heard in support of not tithing. And again, I don't think it's going to take me nearly as long to flesh out this reason as it did uh, for the first reason I just laid out. But here is a verse that a lot of people appeal to when they're talking about not tithing, but instead just, well, let me read the verse to you and you'll see what I mean. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven. You know this verse, you've heard it. Maybe you've cited it yourself. This is what it says. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, it's right there. It's, it's plain. It's, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. I mean, if if I haven't felt in my heart, if I haven't decided in my heart to give 10%, I shouldn't give 10% because that's not what I decided in my heart to give. It, it's there. I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've heard this. I've, I've heard use of this scripture so many times as a reason for not tithing. It says right there, give what you've decided in your heart to give. And you know what? This week, I just, I just, my heart hasn't decided to give a full 10%. I think, I think I'm good with 3% this week. I think I'm good with that. Okay. The, the issue I have with using this scripture is that it completely takes it out of context. It, it just, it, it's a good sounding scripture and you just pluck it out 
and you use that and you say, there it is, it's proof, but it's not taking into consideration what the entire context of this scripture is talking about. And so if you, if you use it for the non-tithing argument, then you've misused this text. One of the basic principles that we adhere to when we study scripture is that we, we have to apply the rule of context. And the rule of context is that context rules. Whatever comes before and whatever comes after the verse or the passage that you're reading, you have to take it into consideration in order to inform your interpretation of that verse that you're reading. You can't just take a verse because it sounds good and because it says what you want it to say and say, here it is, there's the proof. No, you have to read that verse in context. Otherwise, you can make Scripture say whatever you want it to say whatever you want it to say. So for example, if, if uh, I, 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 could, I, I could make a case that scripture advocates adultery. Yeah. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a passage from, uh, from when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and it says that she wasn't his wife, yet he slept with her. And then I'm going to skip some pages, and I'm going to go over, way over, over to uh, where, where Jesus said, uh, go and do the same. And there it is. I've built my case for permission to commit adultery. See, now that's an extreme example, obviously, right? But that's the danger that takes place when you take verses out of context and you make them say what they never intended to say, and they only say what you want them to say. And in this case, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, I think when people appeal to that verse as a verse for God doesn't want me to tithe. He wants me to give what I've decided in my heart. Ah, you're not taking into consideration the context. What is the context? It's a very specific situation that Paul is addressing. See, there were some problems, some financial problems going on in the churches in Judea. The Christians in Judea, more than likely because of persecution, were experiencing financial hardship. They, they, were, they were going broke. They were experiencing financial hardship. So what does Paul do? He sends out an appeal. He sends out a, a, a request, a petition to churches in other parts of the world. Hey, our brothers and sisters in the churches in Judea are suffering financial hardship. We need help. Would you, would you please consider sending some financial help for the people in the churches in Judea. Titus is going to be in Corinth. He's going to pick up that stuff, and he's going to take it to the churches in Judea, Jerusalem. But we really need your help. And I mean, Paul takes like two chapters to explain all this stuff. And and it's in that context, a special financial hardship situation that the churches and the believers in Judea were experiencing. Would you please help us out? We We really need your help. And then Paul says, now look, now look, this this is an invitation to you, and I would really love for you to help out. Other churches are helping too. This is where Philippians comes in. Uh, other churches are helping out too. But look, each of you should give what you've decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There, it has nothing to do with tithing. It has nothing to do with should I tithe or should I not. This is a specific circumstance of financial hardship being experienced among the Christian believers in Judea. And Paul is appealing to other Christians who weren't going through that hardship and who could maybe afford to help them out financially and saying, look, we really need you to help out. Could you please help out in this situation? It would, it would mean so much to the people, the believers in Judea, and, it, and man, we just, we really need your help. But look, 
just whatever God places in your heart to give. I don't, I don't want you to give with a reluctant or heart or under compulsion. Just give whatever you've decided in your heart to give. No, notice how that's com- an issue that's completely separate and distinct from tithing. This is generosity. When you tithe, you're not being generous. When you tithe, you've simply done what you've been commanded to do. Consider yourself an unworthy servant. <laughs> when you tithe, you've simply done what you've been asked to do. This situation in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, this is a generosity thing. This is an issue of, hey, there's some need. You don't, you're not obligated to do this. Don't even feel obligated to do it. Just pray, think about it, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, have a conversation with your wife, and whatever you decide in your heart to give to this specific financial hardship, do it, and do it with joy, because God loves a cheerful giver. Notice how that has nothing to do with the tithing conversation. And and it, it does it does bother me that some people I even heard a New Testament scholar a seminary professor on a YouTube video that I came across that he he used this verse and I'm thinking buddy buddy come on man you're you're not you're not respecting the context and you're just making it say what you want to say and I just I I can't I, that's not my approach to scripture or I, I I can't do that I want to respect the context and what's being said so if you're one of these individuals who says well, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says that you should give whichever you've decided in your heart to give. Yes, you're absolutely right, but that doesn't refer to tithing. That doesn't refer to tithing. That refers to special circumstances that require special contributions. And, and I'll, just, I'll just say this. I mean, when have you ever known God to negotiate with people and say, look, whatever, whatever you feel you want to do, I mean, if, if you want to halfway worship me, go ahead. If, if you want to worship me and then also worship uh, you know, some other god, uh, the Asherah poles, uh, uh, Astaroth, and Baal, and you know, okay, I mean, that's cool. Whatever, whatever you feel in your heart to do, go go with that. No, I mean, he lays it down very clearly. I'm the only god. You worship me and nobody else. And I, I think I think that's similar, if not identical, to the whole tithing situation. He says, look, it's ten percent. Just bring the ten percent. If you want to give anything beyond that, fantastic. But start with ten percent. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you from personal experience, from personal experience that God has never failed us. And, and I'm sure maybe in your case, it's the same as well. Have we been through financial difficulties? Yeah, God has always provided. Have there been times when we didn't have as much money as perhaps we'd have liked to have? Of course, but God has always provided. I've never skipped a meal. And if you know me in person, you can tell that I've never skipped a meal. I've never had to sleep a night outside in my car because we didn't have a roof over our heads. I've never, my, my daughters have never skipped a meal. They've always had something to eat. They've always had shoes on their feet. We, we've never, they've never seen one of our cars being repossessed. Never. And I attribute that entirely to God's blessing, to God's faithful provision, because we've decided to honor him with our finances. And for us as a family, honoring God with our finances means tithing. We tithe a full 10% on everything. And I mean everything that comes into our home, we tithe off of it. Uh, A couple of days ago, or a few days ago, was my birthday. And I got some cash for my birthday. It's a gift. You know what? Forever. I've always tithed off of monetary gifts that people have given me. You may say, buddy, what a Pharisee. I mean, what a, like, man, sticking to the letter of the law. Maybe, I don't, I don't know, maybe I am, perhaps. But I'm thinking, okay, if I tithe off of this, like, is God going to rip me off? 
I mean, really, it, you know, if, if, if I tithe, and I know I'm not doing it like with a, a pharisaical attitude, like, oh no, the law says that I must tithe. And so I got this money for my birthday. So I have to tithe because that's what the law says. No, I, I don't. I say, man, this is money that I didn't have otherwise. I, I'm grateful for it. And I, I'm happy to tithe in, in gratitude to God for giving me this money that otherwise I wouldn't have. I mean, wow, what, what a blessing. And so I've just made it, my wife and I, we both made it a practice that even if it's just a, a financial gift that somebody gives us for a birthday, we tithe on it. And we say, thank you, Lord. I mean, thank you very much for, for this. And, and with a heart of gratitude and, and thanksgiving and in worship, here it is. It's yours. And I'll tell you, God has just, he's been so faithful. He's been so faithful. And so bringing this back to Obed-Edom, I think that one of the blessings that Obed-Edom experienced was this blessing of God's provision. That, that for Obed-Edom, remembering the story of the manna in the wilderness was something that it reminded him of the necessity of honoring God with resources and with finances and with anything material. And when he did that, when he honored God, one of the ways in which God blessed him was with financial provision or provision of whatever provision he needed in that moment and in that manner that he needed. Because God honors his word. And, and look, there, there's a, there's a, a poem, in, it's in Spanish, it's in Spanish, written by a very well-known Spanish evangelist and, and music composer. His name is Juan Romero. And in Spanish, the, the poem starts off by saying, Una cosa he aprendido en mi vida al caminar, que no le puedo ganar a Dios cuando se trata de dar. One thing I've learned as I've journeyed through this life, that I cannot beat God when it comes to giving. And the poem goes on to say, every time he asks of me is because he wants to give me something. And any time he gives me something is because he's going to ask something of me. But this poem just, it, it, it really encapsulates a beautiful, wonderful truth that you will never outgive God. You're never going to beat God in giving. And so if you feel that 10% is too much, look, try it. I mean, try it. And don't, don't try it because I told you to try it. Don't try it because you're... Um, uh, I, I don't know, because you want to fulfill the law. I mean, no, don't try it because of that. Try it because because you want to honor God with your finances. Try it because you, you have a heart full of gratitude and thankfulness for, for what God has done for you. And Malachi does say this is one of the only times, if not the only time in the Bible, where God says, test me. Test me on this. Test, bring, bring the entire tithe to the storehouse. Test me now in this and see if I'm not going to open up the windows of heavens and pour out blessings over you until they overflow. Test God. I mean, you have permission, and in fact, you have an invitation from God to test him, and it has to do specifically with finances, with provision from God. And I, I think I think you'll be really pleased. You'll be really pleased when you decide to test God in this way. Now, again, do it with the right attitude, the correct heart, and, and do it to honor God. Do it because you want to honor God. It's okay to test him because he gave you that invitation, gave you that permission, but also do it with a heart of gratitude. And do it to honor him and say, God, I'm going to honor you with my finances. You are the owner of everything. And so if you've asked this of me, I know that you're not going to let me down. I know that it's not because you are you have your hand out and you need a handout and, and you're begging for money. No, it's, if you're asking this of me, it's because there's something much bigger that you're going to give me. 
And if you give that to me, then I'm, I'm just going to turn it right back around and continue to use it to advance your kingdom. Grow as a disciple. Live, love, and lead to honor God. So, bro, I don't know, test it out. I'd love to hear from you in the comments or in the, send me an email, mario at thechristianbrocode.com. Tell me what you think about what I've laid out here. If you've got a, a counterpoint to that, man, I'd love to hear it. I'm not interested in entering a debate with you necessarily, but I'd love to learn if you have a different viewpoint. Boy, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to learn uh, where, how you've come to your conclusion. If you're not in favor of the type, I'd, I'd love to learn how, biblically, how did you come to that conclusion? Uh, man, I'm open to listening and learning. Uh, I'm not necessarily trying to convince you, and I hope you're not trying to convince me. I'm just laying out to you, or I laid out to you in this episode, how biblically, using Scripture, how I came to my conclusion that, yeah, tithing is something that should still be in effect, in effect for your life and for, uh, for your family. Uh, really, you, you won't go wrong if you decide to tithe. Uh, you, you're, you're not going to go wrong. God is going to, God's going to blow your mind. Absolutely. So there we go. This is the final episode in our three-part series on Obed-Edom. Uh, I hope this has been a blessing and beneficial to you. Open up your mind a little bit, get you to think a little bit about some things. My recommendation to you would be that you go back and you read the story of Obed-Edom in Second Samuel chapter six, and then go to Exodus and Numbers and reread the episodes of the Tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments, that was episode one of this series, uh, Aaron's Rod, that was episode two of this series, and then now you can also read in Exodus 16 about the Jar of Manna, that was episode three in this series. And I know that if you go back and you look at them carefully, you're going to find out some things that obviously I did not, could not cover in these three episodes, things that I think are going to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus. That's all I've got for you in this episode, bro. Hey, don't forget to subscribe. Leave some comments, send me an email, mario at thechristianbrocode.com. And also, this would be awesome. What if you shared this episode or any of your favorite episodes of the podcast, share it with another Christian bro, and, and maybe you can use it as a basis of, of conversation to say, hey, man, did you hear that episode? What do you think about it? I mean, where, where did this guy go off, off the tracks? I mean, where's this guy crazy? Or where is he making sense? And just have a conversation with somebody, not, to de- not, not necessarily to debate or fight, but to grow to learn together and to grow, pick each other's brains. Uh, I had a friend who used to say, you can you can pick your nose and you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your friend's nose. <laughs> I, I don't know where that's going. But anyway, uh, but have a conversation with somebody and, and talk about this uh, so you can continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus. All right, bro. Hey, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to go pick up your free resource at thechristianbrocode.com to help take your Bible study to a new level. And subscribe to the podcast, like, share, comment, all that stuff that we always ask you to do. Go ahead and do that. And until next time, God bless, bro.